This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Uh, this is uh this is one of the most uh iconic places in Manhattan, I would have to say. We've been here for so many years. Anybody who's anybody got their hair cut at asked the place. I, you know. This is Mike Saviello, known to all as Big Mike. He's the manager at Aster Hair, a boisterous basement barbershop that has been cutting New Yorkers' hair for decades, including mine and Mayor Bill de Blasio's. Mike says the mayor was here two weeks ago. His haircut cost 20 bucks. I've been here 40 years, and, and since we've been here, I met people who were nobody and then became stars. I mean, like... David Bowie got his first haircut here when he was, you know, Andy Warhol got his first haircut here. And then there was new kids on a block used to come here. I came to talk to Big Mike because I wanted to peek at how New York City, once the country's COVID-19 epicenter, was reopening. He had set up a desk on the sidewalk. He had a point-and-shoot thermometer and a yellow legal pad for contact tracing. Phone number? And a walkie-talkie to communicate with the inside of the shop. Coming down. Inside, the place is quieter than usual. And not just because clients are waiting upstairs. Uh, first day was uh, last Monday. It was crazy. We were we had like 30, 40 people out here waiting the whole time. Uh, second day was busy. Uh, then it slowed down after that. We're probably one-fourth of our capacity right now for this week. Uh, Astor Hair, like many businesses in New York, has the green light to open. But without one key part of their clientele, Manhattan office workers... It's been hard to get back up to speed. Well, that's that's the main the main reason why we're slow. I mean, we have a lot of uh, customers that work in the office buildings. A lot of people from Wall Street. We have a lot of customers from Midtown that work in offices that would come. Those people are not coming because they're not coming to work. So that's 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 more than half of our business right there. I'm Henry Grabar, a staff writer at Slate. For much of my career, I've written about cities, about housing and transportation and immigration and urban development. Then the coronavirus happened. And the places I thought I knew were instantly transformed. Since the start of the pandemic, I've been tracking this upheaval and asking questions about what American cities will look like one, five, ten years from now. I'm sure you've heard someone say that COVID-19 could mean the end of the city. This is not the first time that people have made that prediction. Virtually every technology, from the telephone to the automobile to the internet, has threatened to pull cities apart. But even if the pandemic is unlikely to kill off the city for good, clearly American cities are not going to be the same. What I found on my visit to Astor Hair is that even in neighborhoods that don't feel like they're full of offices, nothing's getting back to normal until offices open again. If offices open again. Since March, Manhattan's trademark 9 to 5 pulse, when the population doubles during the day and halves at night, has gone silent. 
white-collar work has dissolved into home offices across the country. And some executives, like Twitter's Jack Dorsey and Morgan Stanley's James Gorman, have said that the status quo right now is working just fine. Here's Gorman. Clearly, you know, we've figured out how to operate with much less real estate. That, you know, number one right off the bat. Can I see a future where part of every week, uh, certainly part of every month for a lot of our employees will be at home? Absolutely. For the next six Fridays, I'll be sitting in for Lizzie O'Leary and reporting on the future of the city during and after COVID-19. On today's show, what happens to the corporate skyscraper now? When this is finally over, will companies even want an office? And can cities survive without them? This is What Next TBD. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I've looked at a bunch of your designs, and I feel like the bumping into each other is is actually kind of the whole thing. It's the whole idea. <laughs> to some extent, do you feel like you're now like working against your own philosophy of what an office is supposed to look like? <laughs> um, a bit. This is John Capobianco, a principal at Interior Architects which develops offices for blue-chip clients like Uber and LinkedIn. John's designs are full of houseplants and eye-catching light fixtures and modernist sofas. This is not Dunder Mifflin we're talking about. More than anything, they're open, full of shared spaces and surfaces. So I wanted to ask, who in their right mind would want to go back to such an office right now? Turns out the answer was John himself. In our office, we're eliminating our China temporarily. And if you want a glass, you bring it in yourself and use your own and you take it home at night. You've mentioned that you guys feel like you're actually working really well from home. Um, I'm wondering if you feel some pressure as someone who is working on behalf of clients to make their offices COVID proof to go back into your own office and say, well, look, we're doing it. So, so can you. There is a bit of pressure there. Um, you know, we're doing this for a living, so we need to be on the forefront of the return. I'm wondering what then your office is going to look like when you come back. What will be the changes that you'll see uh, as people come back into the office? Mm-hmm. So in our office, uh, the big change is that of an office of, um, I think we have about 85 desks and about 75 employees in our New York office. The big change is that there's only going to be 28 to 30 people in at any one time. Typically, what we're suggesting is that you go to the office for a few purposes. One is team collaboration, socialization. Um, The second would be to do things in the office that you couldn't do at home, such as use our resource library, et cetera. Right. So how are you all going to coordinate to make sure that you don't go over that 30-person or roughly 30% capacity limit that you've set for yourselves? Is there going to be some sort of sign-up sheet when it's full? Sorry, no more more people in the office today? That's exactly it. 
it really is the first 30 people that hit the sign-up sheets get into the office. So we have a population of around 75 people. And so we're dividing that into two shifts. So we have a team A and a team B. Team A will be in on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and then alternating. B will be in Tuesday and Thursday and Friday the following week. So if team A and team B want to meet, they better do it in the park. <laughs> yes. Well, we are actually specifically designing team A's to actual functional teams. Um, so everybody in team A will be related to each other. This isn't just an easy way to keep the office from getting crowded. It also helps with contact tracing. You can keep half your team safe from the other half. The problem is, what we know about the coronavirus is still in flux. At the beginning, the guidance from the WHO and the CDC was that the virus spread mainly through surfaces, not actually the biggest risk, as it turns out. Then, elevators in public transit were thought to be dangerous. But in countries that have reopened, they don't seem to be generating infections. So John isn't wrapping everything in plastic. He's only making changes he can be sure about. Hygiene stations are in. Closely spaced chairs, they're out. Fresh air, that's in. Espresso machines, out. I know you guys work in this uh, older building down on Broadway. Um, yes. Do you have windows? Can you open windows? I assume that's not something that many of your clients have the privilege of doing. No, unfortunately not, especially not in the New York market. <laughs> um, I think that's much more familiar to the folks on the West Coast in some more modern uh, office buildings. Our windows do not open, despite being an older building. Um, but what we are doing is essentially adjusting our balance of recycled air versus outdoor air to the maximum. So it, our mechanical systems will be running with like 90% outdoor air, which may affect temperature a bit within the office and the humidity levels, but actually a higher humidity level is better while John is busy thinking about how to make his office safe right now, he's also dealing with a larger question. If people are doing just fine working from home, why go in at all, even when the pandemic subsides? In other words, John is thinking about how to adapt offices, not just to the coronavirus, but to remote work, which might be here to stay. How do we attract workers to come in when it's optional to come in? Right. So how do we create a center of community or, or sort of the hive that everybody returns back to. I could imagine a landscape based on activity, um, you know, with the central core being sort of the community areas and places for people to get together and, you know, do their work and collaborate. It sounds like you're saying that actually the office going forward will put even more of an emphasis on the kind of communal group meeting spaces that seem to be the most threatened by COVID-19. Like if anything, it's the individual workstation that has proven itself obsolete and the group space that seems more essential than ever. 100%. What struck me in talking to John was how his plan to help clients through COVID was kind of the same as his plan to help them after COVID. He's building for the world COVID created. In part because there seems to be a corporate consensus. What's the point in dragging workers back to the office only to lock them inside plexiglass boxes? As the CEO of Warby Parker put it, his employees would rather be productive at home than, quote, going into what feels like a maze. In short, for many businesses, working from home is working. The long leases they sign for office space make them think long term. And that means that the plan for now and the plan for post-COVID are starting to coalesce around the same idea. 
fewer workers in the office. For a second opinion, I went someplace a bit more familiar. You designed Slate's offices, right? I did. So you guys are in the Metrotech location, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's, where I, that's where I work. That's Hannah Hackathorn, a design principal at Unispace, who helped create Slate's New York office. Picture brightly colored sofas, exposed ceilings, and rows and rows of desks. In her head, she's already redoing the space for the COVID era. If I were to redesign Slate Office now, it would be probably less desk focus. Um, and I'm not saying that that means that there is no desk in the workplace going forward. But I think it's rethinking that all those individual focused desk area where you guys have that whole open benching, horseshoeing around those central conference function. Imagine all of that is gone and you're seeing more of different community of um, combination of the library table and mixed with a open scrum area that's delineated by a some sort of a structure that you can accommodate technology and marker boards and et cetera, right? So the physical foundation of the desk layout or office layout rather are so substantially different. Well, so even if I end up sitting at a library table at the Slate offices and my home base is really my desk at my house, Where do I keep my stuff in the office? Do I not have a private space for myself anymore? That's an excellent question. And I think it's becoming, you will definitely have your individual storage, whether it's a form of lockers and whatnot, so that you don't have to constantly truck around. A locker, like going to high school. (laughs) Yeah, I know that seems like a sort of rad idea, right? You know, one of the biggest challenge I think people may feel is that we used to personalize our individual desk area by putting our family's picture or pet photos or individual tchotchkes, plants or whatnot. And I think we're thinking that stays at home as your home base office. And think of office environment as the team structure. Um, it's a place where you're coming in to collaborate. So, so basically in my home office now, I should have photos of my work colleagues rather than <laughs> the other way around. Sure. So, quick caveat. Both Hannah and John would say the office has a future. It's their job. And we're talking about the companies like Slate, where employees can work from home. Not all jobs are conducive to remote work. But what struck me was that even their most optimistic case, the one where firms retain their corporate footprint, is also one where fewer employees use it. That means fewer secretaries, fewer cooks in the office cafeteria, and fewer security guards in the lobby. And that slowdown spills into the city. It takes customers away from the coffee cart, from the deli, and from Big Mike at Astor Hair. So to understand how blocks of emptier office towers affect the rest of the city, I called up Ellen Baer. She's the president of the Business Improvement District in a section of Manhattan called Hudson Square. For our listeners who might not be familiar, can you kind of describe what Hudson Square is like on a normal day, or or I guess what, what was a normal day until recently? Yes, before the new normal, whatever that is. We have a lot of Art Deco um, 20, 1920s buildings that used to be used for printers and are now occupied by, really by media and uh, creative types, uh, graphic designers. Uh, Disney is, is going to be making their home there. Google is, is opening their second headquarters there. And we are very much a business district. We are 
about 90% commercial. And so the streets are teeming with uh, the creative class all day uh, during a normal day in the old normal, um, you know, going about their business, uh, standing online, exchanging thoughts as they're getting their, their sandwiches for lunch. And uh, it's, it's very, very much bustling with uh, young creative types. How many people work in the area? We have a daytime population of about 70,000 people. So what has life been like without them? Well, our pedestrian counts were at one point down by 89%. Uh, They are currently stabilized in the low reduction year over year in the low 70s. So 70%, about 70% of the people who you would normally see walking down the street in Hudson Square are not there right now. And when those workers go away, that retail, which has been catering to them, uh, loses its customer base. Um, if it turns out that, that companies do come back, but, but maybe remote work becomes more popular and it, and it takes in total nine or 12 months for activity to resume, um, are the businesses in your neighborhood going to make it? Some of them will not. I don't know what to say beyond that. We're doing everything we can to help them. We're providing uh, parklets, outdoor spaces. We're trying to organize the public realm for them. But the bottom line is they need customers. And uh, I think something really interesting to think about is what is the impact of that on the ground floor environment? You know, it's sort of a vicious cycle. We're trying to uh, make the neighborhood a place where people want to come back. Um, but if if they don't come back and the uh, mm-hmm. the ground floor spaces begin to empty out, what does that do to the way it feels in the ground floor environment? So we have to we're going to have to be really creative to try and uh, figure out how we can keep our neighborhoods thriving as real New York neighborhoods. There's a local precedent that gives people reason for optimism. New Yorkers like to talk about how downtown came back after 9-11, how it defied the odds. And that's kind of true. It did take billions of dollars from Washington. And the office headcount didn't reach 2001 levels until last year. But something else happened in lower Manhattan after 9-11. It became something more than an office district. The residential population tripled. 40,000 people moved in. That trick may not work this time. With everything shut down, restaurants and nightlife going out of business, and no need for a quick commute, will people even want to live in the city anymore? It's a question we'll try to answer in this series. And that's the show. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. Derek John and Allison Benedict helped with editorial direction for this episode. Thank you, Allison and Derek. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I'm Henry Grabar. Thanks for listening. Mary will be back in your feed on Monday. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.